I assume we've all been on a roller coaster. That's a great way to describe the book of Revelation. When you get on a roller coaster, they give you instructions as you get into your seat, how to buckle that thing, keep your hands and legs inside, that sort of stuff. In our last episode, we looked at some of those basic instructions for this roller coaster ride of Revelation. Some of those instructions in chapters 1 through 5 were this the setting. It's John, the fisherman disciple on Patmos. We got the primary audience, seven pastors in seven churches in Asia Minor, and the secondary audience, anyone who cares how the story of God, his people in this planet, wraps up. We got the time frame, what was, what is, and what is to come. That is, in John's rearview mirror behind him, in the side windows happening around him, or in the windshield in the road ahead. We also got the intended impact, comfort, and hope for all those who are all in on Jesus, and a plea to come to God or come back to God to those who are on the outside. We got the first vision in chapter 5. It's the scene in heaven, God the Father holding a scroll with seven seals, nobody there worthy to break the seals, but then one like a lamb who is slain, Jesus, handed the scroll by God the Father and ready to break the seals. That's what we got in our instructions for this roller coaster in chapters 1 through 5. Chapters 1 through 5 is like that slow jerky ride to the crest of the hill on a roller coaster. That comes right before the wild ride of chapters 6 through 19 we'll look at in this word picture episode. There's a few other instructions I'd like to give you before we go on this ride. First, prophecy is just one clump in scripture. Please remember that. In both the Old and New Testament, we had the law or gospel clump, the history clump, the poetry or letters clump, and the prophecy clump. Though Revelation is fascinating and a wild ride, it's only one clump of God's love story to us, so keep it in its place. Second, Jesus made it clear the content of chapters 6 through 19 is what was, that is before John's time, what is during John's lifetime, and what is to come after John's time between John and us or even in our future. These are all kind of mixed together, like you'd mix Scrabble pieces. As these chapters are turned over like pieces, you'll see they're not turned over in specific order. Third, remember from past episodes, we're pygmies and God's revelation is an iPhone. The best we can probably do is rough shapes and outlines of what was, what is, and what is to come. Hold your convictions in open hands, maybe even trembling, humble hands. Jot down your views in pencil and make sure it has a good eraser. Next, these descriptions in chapters 6 through 19 must be consistent with what God has already revealed in Scripture and through the teachings of Jesus. Those dog-eared pages like Daniel chapter 7 or Matthew chapter 24. Speaking of Matthew 24, Jesus ended that with two parables of being watchful and ready. Revelation, like Daniel 7, Matthew 24, or 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, is intended to cause us a sense of expectation, an incentive to walk obediently, to serve diligently, to hope greatly. Now we're poised at the top of this roller coaster. It's showtime. We're ready to take the plunge and get ready for a wild ride. 
chapter 6. In chapter 6, you'll read about seals broken on that scroll by Jesus. The first four seals are four horses. They're described as white, red, black, and gray. The white one, conquerors, will go forward. The red one, war and bloodshed, will break out. The black one, famine will follow. And the gray one, death in the grave, will be prominent. John is told that a quarter of the earth's population will die by sword, famine, or disease. A fifth seal is broken, and martyrs, those killed for their obedience to God or testimony of Jesus, are crying out before God, How long will you wait to judge and rule? They're told, Hang in there a little longer. Here's one of those places, those four horses and martyrs for God or Jesus could be what was, what is at John's time, or what is to come. Clearly, history is littered with white, red, black, and gray horses. Conquerors, war and bloodshed, famine and death from wars, and famine and disease have been a part of the human experience through all of human history, and so has the killing of God's people. A sixth seal is broken by Jesus, and here we see cosmic meltdown, earthquakes, and people wishing to die rather than live. John is told it's time for the wrath of the Lamb. Those who interpret this as in our future, at the end of human history, point out that we've never seen events quite like this. But I want to repeat a principle used previously in this podcast. Revelation is given to John from God. The question is, whose clock is being used? John's clock or God's? God is eternal. He's outside of time. Some point to this and remind us it is possible these are not sudden events that come out of nowhere, but people are, like frogs in the kettle, slowly cooked over time. Take, for example, that last statement about the sixth seal. People wish to die rather than live. What if that didn't happen from terrible events, but slowly, over time, millennia even, people lost the will to live? They developed a, I hate my life, kind of mindset. In chapter 7, we see an angel sealing 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe. Futurists talk about a time in the future where Jews embrace Jesus as Messiah, and they're killed for Jesus during this time of great tribulation. Others aren't so sure it's futuristic. Could it have been something in the past, or even just symbolic? In chapter 8, Jesus breaks the seventh seal. We're told there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. Silence in scripture is normally a prelude to judgment. See Habakkuk 2.20, for example. That's true of many families. When silence comes from parents of incorrigible kids, they'll often think, oh boy, we went to the well one too many times. We're really going to get it. So we've had seven seals on this scroll opened by Jesus. At the seventh seal, seven angels carrying trumpets begin to blast their trumpets. At the first trumpet blast, there's hail and fire mixed with blood. A third of the vegetation of the earth is burned up. Trumpet two sounds. There's something like a burning mountain that's thrown into the sea, and a third of the seawater becomes bitter. Trumpet three sounds, and a great burning star like a torch hits the fresh water of our planet, and a third of the fresh water is made bitter. Then trumpet four, one third of the moon and the stars are darkened. We read about an angel flying through the heavens, 
Trumpets 1 through 4 were nothing. It's going to get worse. Those who view Revelation as symbolic say, this is just trying to tell us it's not going to be pretty for God's people or sinners or our planet. But those who believe these are future prophecies say, watch the sky. Stuff is going to happen. Maybe meteorites. Probably a literal dimming of the sun. Others aren't so sure. They remind folks, God is outside of time. Why can't some of this stuff happen over time? For example, why can't the waters of the ocean or the fresh waters of our planet become bitter through pollution or the vegetation burned up by climate change and deforestation? Trumpets 5 through 7 blast in chapter 9, and with them, angels cry out three woes or warnings. The fifth trumpet or first woe is smoke comes out of a bottomless pit. That smoke is actually a cloud of locusts or something that looks like locust to wound or hurt people. The description of these locusts can only be described as sci-fi, like perhaps some high-tech weapon in the future. The sixth trumpet sounds and the second woe. Four angels are at the Euphrates. We learn that John was to address this letter to the seven angels of the churches in Asia Minor. Angels could be leaders. Could this be four leaders at the Euphrates? The chapter describes a number of soldiers. It gives them 200 million. War breaks out and a third of the population is killed. And still, people do not turn to God for help. In chapter 10, we get a weird little parenthesis. An angel comes with a little book. John is about to write what he has seen or heard in that little book or scroll, but he's told to put his pen down. John is told, eat this scroll, and John eats it. It tastes sweet as he chews it up, but it gives him serious indigestion. In chapter 11, John is told to take a yardstick and measure the temple, but not the courtyard. Futurists point to the likely date of John's writing being after the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in 70 AD, and they comment the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Then two prophets arise, like Elijah in the Old Testament, with the ability to shut up the sky. Someone or something identified as the beast kills these prophets. They lie dead in Jerusalem. People all over the world celebrate the death of these individuals. But after a few days, we're told they're raised from the dead. They come to life and levitate into the heavens. This is followed by a great earthquake. The seventh trumpet sounds and the last woe is given. This is Handel's Messiah. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall rule forever. Then comes chapter 12. For those futurists who believe all these events in 6 through 19 are in John's future or ours, chapter 12 throws a real monkey wrench in there. Chapter 12 describes a woman with 12 stars on her head and a dragon identified as Satan sweeping a third of the stars from heaven. The dragon tries to devour a child that the woman bears. The child, one who will rule all nations. The child is then caught up into heaven, and the woman is taken into the wilderness to be cared for. Michael the archangel and Satan the dragon and his angels are warring in heaven. 
The dragon, as I said, is ID'd as the angel Lucifer or Satan, the accuser of God's people. He is thrown down and with him all of his fallen bellboys. Then woe is pronounced upon the earth, for the devil has come down with great wrath, knowing he only has a short time to mess with God's people. Chapter 12 continues showing Satan persecuting the woman and pouring out a river after her to sweep her away. Satan, enraged, makes war with those who align with Jesus. It sure seems like a description of eternity past, Satan and his bellboys trespassing from their place assigned by God, then trying to prevent the Messiah through Pharaoh, Athaliah, Haman, and King Herod. In chapter 13, the dragon then summons a beast out of the sea of humanity. The beast is described much like Daniel's vision. He or it is fast, brutal, dictatorial. The beast appears to have miraculous powers, and the beast's objective is to turn worship towards Satan. He's arrogant and blasphemous and attacks the saints. Then a second beast comes forward. He's the first beast's assistant. This thing or person is miraculous as well and deceptive. This thing or person, this second beast, gets people to worship the first beast. He makes people to get a mark in order to buy or sell. This second beast is ID'd for John. His name in numerical code is 666. Now, I thought that might get your attention. I saw a license plate yesterday on the road with 666 at the end. I thought to myself, man, if they gave me that plate at the DMV, I'd ask for a different one. Someone showed me 666 is a routing code in a recent check I saw. That's a little scary. Or you hear about identity theft and the possible need for a barcode or chip under one's skin to stop it. That's a futuristic approach. But others treat this as symbolic. Six was the number of man. Think day six of creation. And repeating something three times symbolic for perfection, like a cube or the trinity. Could this be symbolic of a perfect man or an unholy trinity of Satan, the beast, and the assistant beast? Are you hanging on tight? The ride isn't over yet. Chapter 14, we see Jesus standing on Mount Zion with others. An angel is flying with the gospel across the earth to preach to every nation, tongue, and people. It's a last call to reach out to all people before judgment. We're introduced in code to a city or a person called Babylon. The angel says Babylon is going down. We're told that those who worship the beast and his image are going down. Then John sees a white cloud and one like the Son of Man with a sickle in his hand. That one like the Son of Man has been code throughout the New Testament for Jesus. And that sickle? Hey, I grew up on a farm. That's to harvest. An angel with a sickle joins Jesus, and they swing their sickles. We're told blood flows for 200 miles outside of Jerusalem to the height of horses' bridles. That 200-mile radius of blood to the horses' bridles should give us adequate proof. This is symbolism. Do the math on how much blood you'd need to go 200-mile radius four feet high. Chapter 15 gives us an image of likely heaven with people singing robustly 
And as they do, seven angels with seven bowls come out of a temple in heaven. These bowls are to be poured like chamber pots on the earth. Bowl one are malignant sores on those with the mark of the beast. Bowl two, the sea becomes like blood and everything in it dies. Bowl three, the fresh waters become like blood. This sounds very much like what happened in the book of Exodus in Egypt. We're given an editorial comment, drink this blood like you shed the blood of my people. The fourth angel dumps his bowl and the sun scorches men with intense heat, yet they don't turn back to God and repent. Bowl five is dumped and there's darkness on the kingdom of the beast. Still, no repentance. Bowl six is dumped and the Euphrates dries up for the kings from the east. We're told kings are gathered together for a great war, a war on a battlefield called Armageddon. Armageddon in the valley of Megiddo. When Bowl 7 is poured on the earth, it's over. History's greatest earthquake happens. Jerusalem is split into three parts and every major city falls. Islands and mountains even fall, and it's followed by intense hail. In chapters 17 and 18, we're introduced more to this Babylon, this code for a great harlot. Babylon is called a woman with seven heads and ten horns. Her sin, immorality and abominations, and filling herself drunk with the blood of the saints, the witnesses of Jesus. An angel interprets for John who this Babylon or woman is. He says the seven heads are seven hills on which she sits, and the ten horns are ten kings who are not yet kings. Together they'll wage war against the Lamb and the saints of God. Then the beast and the ten kings will turn on this harlot or woman on seven hills, this woman who's the great city. At the time of John, it's pretty likely he knew who that woman on seven hills full of immorality and abominations and drunk with the blood of the saints was. That was Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. Some who interpret Revelation think there will be a revival of the old Roman Empire aligned with Rome once again. In chapter 18, the angel reports the fall of Babylon the great harlot. Listen to how she's described again. She is full of immorality and that kings committed this immorality with her. Merchants from all over the world got rich on her. She lived sensuously. Then, in one day, her plagues come. This great city, this strong city, is thrown into the sea like a stone. Merchants have no place to unload their cargo, and all who became rich at sea mourn because of her destruction. We're almost to the end of the ride, chapter 19. There's a scene of a multitude in heaven. The harlot's been judged, the blood of servants avenged. People are shouting, praise God, praise God, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. It's time for the marriage of the Lamb. It's time for the wedding. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here comes the groom. Then we're told about Jesus on a white horse, his robe dipped in blood, his name, the Word of God. Armies of heaven follow on horses. They strike down the disobedient nations. Then Jesus rules with a rod of iron. He's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
he's back to do that king thing. He goes against and defeats the beast and the prophet, and they're thrown into the lake of fire. Was the ride wild enough for you? You made it to the end, almost. The Old Testament promised the Messiah would die for our sins, then rule with justice. He would reign as king forever. What will that look like? Will it be here on earth, or on a new or restored earth? Or will it be in heaven? And what will it be like to be his citizens? And what about those who refuse to be led by this king? Jesus answers those questions for John in our next word picture.